me encourage you to turn to Psalm 84 this morning. Thank you all that prayed for us uh, for uh, while we were on vacation, and uh, I will just simply tell you we had a great vacation, uh, but we're very happy uh, to be back. So thank you for uh, your wishes and your prayers in, in that way. Now in Psalm 84, and uh, as I mentioned that we were going to be hitting uh, a number of psalms this summer, I hope that uh, some of you will have some new favorite psalms. There are certain ones that uh, uh, people are attracted to, and uh, yet there, are, uh, there, there is so much wonderful comfort and uh, content in the psalms that I hope that uh, various ones speak to you, maybe ones that you had overlooked in the past. And I wonder if this may not be one of those for some of you. Um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, though, said about this psalm that it is one of the choicest of the collection one of the most sweet of the psalms of peace. And if anything, in our world, in this time, do we not need psalms of peace, ultimate peace, not uh, not just what the world can offer, because we we see how uh, flimsy uh, the peace that the world offers really is. And you might find, as I read this psalm to you, that uh, when I said Psalm 84, maybe it didn't ring a bell, but some of the verses will. You, you might say, oh, oh, that's where that was. I've, I've heard that. I've even quoted a part of that. I just didn't realize it was in Psalm 84. So as I read this to you, I want you to ask yourself, what's the main thrust of this psalm? There's a lot of things that uh, the psalmist is addressing, but what is the main thrust? What's the main desire of the psalmist? And what do we find out in this psalm about the nature of God, His attributes, who He is, and ultimately about Christ Himself? because of this psalm. Let's give our attention to God's Word here in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrows found a home swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who've set their hearts on pilgrimage as they pass through the valley of Baca, They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. 
They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon your shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's bow together. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful, poetic, beautiful words that through your servant you have spoken through praise but preserved for us. And so, Lord, we would ask that you would show us today why you saw fit to preserve these words. It's more than just the fact that they're beautiful. You want us to grow. You want us to love you more. And so we pray that you would use your word today in our hearts, in our lives, that as we leave here later, we wouldn't leave this worship behind, but that it would truly be a part of our life all week long. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How lovely is your dwelling place. O Lord Almighty, His dwelling place, where is that? Some of your versions may say, your tabernacle. Well, that was easy to locate. In the Old Testament, the tabernacle was the place where God showed His dwelling to his people. It went where they went. It was in their midst. They camped around it. They knew because the tabernacle was there that God was present with them. But what about that tabernacle? Where was the beauty of the tabernacle? Well, it wasn't the outside of it. It was the inside. And where was God? Well, at the very least, He dwelt in the Holy of Holies. And so, what about us? What about today? There is no more tabernacle. 
we don't build a tent and say this is where God is. So where does this really relate to us? The whole idea of him tabernacling among us. It's interesting that uh, the Apostle Paul calls our body our earthly tabernacle. So the point being that His Spirit dwells within us, and that's where His presence is. Still, the beauty of the tabernacle is not on the outside, but it's what what is inside of it. The psalmist here cannot even describe it. Just says how lovely, how beautiful it is. My soul, he says, yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart, my flesh cry out for the living God. That word, uh, cry out there, that, that phrase is used nearly 500 times in the Scripture. And there's a lot of different words and phrases that can be translated in that way. The one that is used here in the Hebrew is an intensive word. In fact, the whole idea is it's something that gives forth, as one described it, a tremulous sound like music. Those are what, at least in terms of worship, what I think of as those notes when you're playing with your feet, those that you can feel. I grew up in an era where we felt our music, right? And, and that's the idea here. But, but the other thing that maybe even we can relate to more, especially me coming off vacation, is that it's... It's like a torrent, like waves. I know, you wish you were there right now, right? But think, on the beach, especially if there's been a storm or something and the waves are just crashing, that kind of a a loud noise that is intensive, it's coming again. And that's what this word is. Now, this verse is uh, what we call in Hebrew poetry uh, Hebrew parallelism. In other words, a, a truth is stated, and then it is stated again just with different words. It's getting this, the same thing across, maybe from a different angle, and certainly that's the case here. If you, you look at this parallelism, uh, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. And so we tend to think of uh, a tabernacle or a building. I'm, I'm just yearning for that. And you might say, what do you mean you're yearning for courts? That's strange. And, you know, as much as someone might like church... How often would you really describe it as I am just yearning for 6952 St. Andrew's Road? 
That would be a strange thing to say. Well, it's explained in the parallelism. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. And so the psalmist really clarifies here, look, it's not about a building, but it's about that relationship. It's about the God who I see dwelling there. I want more of Him. That's what my heart wants. But I don't want you to miss this point. And that is, especially in our day, in a day of individualism, and in a day where I hear far too often people saying, well, you know, I'm a spiritual person. I don't, I don't think I need church, though, in order to find God. And the sense is that, you know, I, I really feel like I commune best with God when I'm out in nature and I'm by myself or I'm out doing this or that. And the psalmist here would have none of that. He says, you know what? I yearn for the corporate nature of, he wouldn't say the body of Christ, but of God's people. Because in a very real sense, I meet God there. Now, don't miss that. He is just fainting for that. Now, he does have a a love for his house, his dwelling place. But it's because that's where he gets more of God. And I, I think the next verses continue to talk about the beauty of that dwelling place. And I, I think we can see the parallel with the church. Uh, verse 3, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar, O Lord Almighty, my King and my God. Now, some have spiritualized this, uh, and I, I think it is talking about more than just you know, birds that happen to be flying around uh, and, you know, that they are somehow worshiping or anything. I don't, I don't think that's the point here. But what I do think is that he has taken an illustration of something that they would relate to. It would make them think of something. And, and he is, he's trying to get his point across. And so he mentions two kinds of birds, a sparrow and a swallow. And what do we know about those? Well, the sparrow, even Jesus used uh, an illustration about the sparrow, about how cheap they were. They don't cost much. And yet, God takes care of them. And so what we know is that the, the people of this day would say, oh yeah, that's that practically worthless little bird. And then the swallow was one that some would say was kind of a restless bird. It's always going somewhere. It's not one that that just sits and dwells. But there is a a restlessness. So he's got these two kinds of birds that perhaps 
even in the, the temple, for instance, you would actually see those birds nesting. And so why does he use that phrase? Well, think of the two. The practically worthless one and the restless one. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote about those birds. He said, I look down some little street and see a humble chapel where a group of simple people worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Despised and rejected of men, even as was their Lord, and I know that this is the rich reality of spiritual truth. You think about that. You can drive through any community in this state and virtually any any state in, in our country, and you go through a little town, and it may be a very poor town, but somewhere nearby is a little church or a chapel where some people are worshiping. They may be poor, they may have nothing, they may not have any reputation. And yet on Sunday morning, while we are here, there are people moving to their church to worship their God. That's what he's talking about. And he said, that's where the rich reality of spiritual truth is. Here are the sparrows who find their rest in the cross of Jesus Christ. Here is worthlessness that finds its worth because the Savior died. You see, that's it. These two little creatures of God. And so we come into a place like this, and it, it doesn't matter what our reputation is, because we are here not to just look at one another. It's about Him, and that's where the spiritual truth is. And for those who are, are restless in this life, there is no answer to restlessness until we find our rest in Him, as has been said so often. Now, the psalmist at this point goes to three blessings, and some have outlined the psalm according to those three blessings. There's all kinds of ways to outline uh, psalms. I find, in, in, in terms of working through them, sometimes an outline just falls out. Sometimes my preference is just to follow the flow of the psalm as it was written, but some have taken uh, these three blessings that he's about to mention, Th- these blessedness, blessed are you, blessed are you, blessed is the one, and those three things and outlined it in that way. Look at verse 4, blessed or blessed are those who dwell in your house, they are ever praising you, Selah. Now look, they're aware that God didn't just live in a house. We don't want to uh, be patronizing, looking back at them and say, oh, you know, those poor folks back then thought that he'd, he'd, he'd just dwelt there. But especially in the Old Testament, God did manifest himself uh, through 
uh, the tabernacle, through the temple. This is, this is where I am dwelling. I'm showing you that I am here. He, he taught about his holiness by having a holy of holies where uh, people could not enter in on a regular basis. It was a specific way, a specific time, and specific one who could enter in. All of these things pointing forward to Christ. But the psalmist emphasizes uh, God's presence. And where there is God's presence, there is blessing. Now look at verse 5, the next blessing. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who've set their hearts on pilgrimage. Now think about the pilgrimage. Uh, uh, some have seen this as a, a, what they might call a pilgrim psalm where uh, they would sing it on their way to Jerusalem. And uh, they you know, were talking about going there for a feast or a festival. But if you think about making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in that day, if you think your family vacations are an adventure, they had much greater adventures, some of them in, in terms of making a pilgrimage uh, across the country in that day. Sometimes it was pleasant. Sometimes it was difficult. Sometimes it was dangerous, discouraging, dry. All of those things and all of those became a part of their pilgrimage with their ultimate goal being out there and that is getting to Jerusalem. Now he fleshes it out in verse 6 as they pass through the valley of Baca. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it uh, with pools. Now, what was he talking about, this valley of Baca? Was it a real place? Well, most commentators don't think necessarily it was a real place, but the, the thought there, the, uh, the word there, the valley of Baca, is a valley of weeping. So, in other words, as they pass through this difficult place, this place where it is mournful, where we are uh, weeping, where we are at, at a bad point in our life, what happens? Well, do, do we get consumed by it? What he's saying here is for God's people, they make it a, a good place. They make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. So instead of getting caught in the negative circumstances of being influenced by them, it's saying, look, those that ultimately are blessed of God are in Him. They have an influence on that which is around it, them. In other words, it's not their circumstances that determines who they are and how they react, but they affect the circumstances around them. They don't become uh, purely mourners, weepers. They don't let that consume them. Verse 7, they go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. So those on this pilgrimage, 
should be strengthened and should be strengthening others even before reaching their ultimate destination. Now, the psalmist, I don't believe, is one that would say, look, this life is awful. You know, we're just in one big valley of Baca, and uh, it's a terrible thing, and all we got to do is let's just get through this life because Zion, (laughs) you know, heaven, that's all that matters. I don't think the psalmist would agree with that. He would say there is indeed on this pilgrimage, there are uh, those times where you're in the valley of Baca, but it's not all that. And even as we pass through that, there are measures of victory in this life when our strength is in God, not when it's in our own strength. So where does that come from? Look at verse 8. Hear my prayer. O Lord God Almighty, listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Now, there's a couple things here that we we just simply, us being on this side of the cross, just simply cannot ignore. The first is the absolute necessity of seeking God's help. He, uh, he, He goes to God in prayer. So he's not implying, look, You just be strong, and you can get through it. You know, in talking about influencing our circumstance, that's not just positive thinking. He's saying, absolutely, I cannot do that. And so, God, you have got to hear my prayer. That's the way God's help will come. But here's the other thing. We cannot depend upon God's favor because of who we are or because we deserve it. We've got to get away from those kinds of thoughts. Look, you've been been through some rough times. You deserve a break. We don't deserve anything. We don't. God doesn't owe us anything. There's never a point where the Creator owes the creature anything. And so what is the basis then that we should receive good from Him. Well, He says this, look with favor on your anointed one. As I say, on this side of the cross, you have the folks in the Old Testament, you have the cross and then us, and we're looking back. Who's the anointed one? We know. It's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And so what we do is we say, look, we we don't deserve your favor. But we are related to your son. And on that basis, O Lord, hear our prayer. In the name of Christ, who does deserve your favor, Will you hear me? Will you give me strength? And then he goes on. Better is one day in your courts. This is one of those verses that you've probably heard or sung. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God 
and dwell in the tents of the wicked. The psalmist is indicating he'd rather be in the uh, lowliest place, whatever you would see in the church as the lowliest place. I thought about naming something, and I thought, well, I don't know, I'm not going to name, you know, a, a, a position, you know. Maybe I should say I'd rather be a pastor in your, you know. But he's saying I'd rather be in the lowliest place than have, you know, a place to dwell with the wicked. I'm comparing these two. And it's better in God's presence. The, you know, so to speak, the worst place in God's presence is better than the best place among the wicked. The psalmist is indicating here, and here's why. Verse 11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does He withhold from those whose walk is blameless. Now that speaks of God's attributes, His goodness, His generosity, His grace. The only problem here is it says God won't withhold from those whose walk is blameless. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you're honest, you're going, whoa. I, you know, I know there's other Psalms, Psalm 14, Psalm 53, that indicates there's no one that fits this. No one has a blameless walk. And so, again, Are we just out of luck, so to speak? No. That's where we learn in the New Testament. It's only those trusting in Christ alone, only those who trust in the only one whose walk was blameless. That's how he rounds out this psalm. But here's a question. Do you really believe that he is the possessor of such good things and he will actually share them with you? I mean, how much do we believe that he will bestow favor on his children? Do we? Golfer uh, Arnold Palmer once played a a series of exhibition rounds uh, over in Saudi Arabia. The king was so impressed that he met with him before uh, Palmer was going to leave uh, soon after uh, this meeting the next day. And he met with uh, Palmer. He said, you know what? I, I'm so appreciative of what you have done. I, I want to give you a gift. Arnold, Arnold uh, Palmer said, no, no, it's, it's been an honor. I've enjoyed this. I, I really don't want to impose on you. Well, the king said... Uh, well, I really, I'd be deeply upset. Please permit me to give you a gift. So Palmer thought for a moment. He said, well, okay, uh, you know, you could give me a golf club. And, you know, that would be something nice from uh, a memento from your country and so on. And the next day, delivered to his room was the deed to a golf club with 
with thousands of acres and a clubhouse, a fully developed golf club. And so the lesson, when you're in the presence of the king, don't ever underestimate. Do not underestimate. How much more should we realize we are in the presence of the one who really possesses it all? And how often do we underestimate that he wants to bestow favor upon us as his children? And the final verse, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. I'm so glad the psalm ended this way because, uh, you know, someone could take the psalm and, and make some kind of a big emphasis and say, you know, all, all they cared about was the building or the, you know, the physical tabernacle. That was their thing back then. But the psalmist rounds it out and, and takes away any doubt of what he really was after. It wasn't about the building. It was about God himself. That's what he's after. That's where the relationship comes, where it says the man who trusts in you. So let's, let's step back, because I asked you before I read the psalm, I, I said, as I read this, I want you to think through What's the main thrust of the psalm? What's the main desire of the psalmist? And then what do we learn about God and ultimately about Christ? Well, I think we do need to understand it went from the sense that God was dwelling in his temple to what happened after that as we look through the scripture. God is dwelling in his temple. And then we see him dwelling among us. The incarnation. The word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt among us. So it went from this building or this tent to him dwelling among us for a period of time. What many felt was far too short. But in his wisdom, then when Jesus had completed his work and he ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit who now dwells within us. So far from dwelling in a place he is dwelling where we are as his children, those trusting in Christ alone. And then pointing ultimately to one more step, and that is when we go to be with him and we dwell with him forever. How blessed is the one who trusts in him. Let's bow together.